And now to the editorial room of the Dragon's Journal and Walter Winchell. Good evening, Mr. and Mr. North and South American. All the ships at sea, let's go to press. Flash. Denver, Colorado. This episode of the Shamley Silhouette was pre-recorded in January 2020. Stay safe, stay well, and enjoy the show. I left America uh, in November 1943 uh, to go to England uh, to do some war work. Uh, I had felt that um, uh, I needed at least to make some contribution mm. um, I think in this country I think um, there wasn't any question of military service I was both over age and overweight at that time. Je ne pouvais pas faire mon service militaire j'étais euh, j'étais trop âgé et trop gros à ce moment-là But nevertheless I felt the urge mais je sentais tout de même le besoin de partir. And my friend Bernstein, Et mon ami Bernstein, Bernstein who was the head of the films qui était le chef de la section des films of the British Ministry of Information. du ministère britannique de l'information. And, um, he arranged for me to go over. Pour que aille. Uh, this was very important for me très important pour moi I wanted to get into the atmosphere of the war. Pénétrer l'atmosphère de la guerre. I wanted to whatever little contribution I could make. Uh, si I, I had a feeling that j'avais l'impression que away, si je n'étais pas, pas ça m'aurait inquiété. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. We have been moved from our normal studio to the outside, the, the world of nature. It's a nice, peaceful day. Nothing's going to go wrong. Nothing's going to interfere with this lovely discussion we're about to have. Um, I... I, I I really want to just dive right into it. Uh, we're welcoming back a former guest. In fact, the first guest of Shamley Silhouette. the and man, the greatest the, guest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Shut up, I'm getting to it. <laughs> the man who started it all off with Classic Cool has come back here to talk a little more Hitchcock with us. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ryan Frost. Hey, thanks for having me back, Zach. Not a problem. You know, we're just going to sit back. We're going to chat about some pleasant Hitchcock movies called The Pleasure Garden and a bunch <laughs> of other pleasant. stuff. And, <laughs> I watched know, the wrong movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what's so fine. We're just going to go into a pleasant conversation. <laughs> Everything's going to be, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm getting a, I'm getting a bulletin. <laughs> oh, my, oh, oh, my God. Ryan. Pearl Harbor's been attacked. Oh, shit. Oh, no. That means the Shamley silhouette has gone to war. 
That's right. And you can help the Warbond situation. Let's hear for our boys in blue. They're on the front lines. So you go in the grocery store and purchase your bonds. Save your bacon fat. Remember, the fat is needed to win the war. There's Private Johnson over there. Wave hi. Yeah, so no, we are actually going to be talking about Hitchcock's World War II era films. Um, these are films that primarily uh, have kind of a double uh, double stigma to them. They are both Hitchcock movies and they are also World War II centered films so that there's a bit of a propaganda aesthetic to them uh, during the time of war. But we will also talk about some preemptive films that led up to this point. So... Uh, Ryan, uh, we've already asked you how you've gotten into Hitchcock. We know that whole story. Um, but one of the reasons I asked you to come down and talk about these films is that we've, uh, you know, we have a share of love of classic Hollywood, uh, within that respect. And a lot of films that we've watched take place during World War II and are very World War II centric. And I know, uh, during your grantathon, you had plenty of films that kind of tackled that era. So what is your impression of, World War II era films and how they kind of balance between propaganda and entertainment. Uh, it's, it's interesting because I think that um, it, I, I think I, I've mentioned before that, you know, when I was watching uh, Cary Grant movies, I always find it fascinating when you watch World War II movies that take place during World War II mm -hmm. to see how people reacted to it. And a lot of it is um, they I always find it interesting when they go a little darker um, and, and the propaganda is really interesting. Um, you know, th there's one film in particular that we're going to talk about that. I, I was kind of shocked about um, how it played out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Cause you know, I, I saw, I've only seen one of the films you asked me to watch this uh, time around and I, I rewatched it and, uh, but this is a different film, but yeah, I mean, it, the, the propaganda I think is a fine line. Mm -hmm. And, um, what I liked about the Hitchcock films, it wasn't very overt. It mm -hmm. was a little subtle. Yeah. Um, and, and what I liked about the films you had me watch is it's kind of a different kind of Hitchcock movie mm -hmm. than I'm used to. Um, but he always has little flourishes in it that yeah. is very, very Hitchcocky. Yeah. He, you know, it's him. Like, yeah. He's standing in a quarter going like, look. Yeah, the war, yeah. but me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, and the messages are there. Um, it's yeah, you know, it's uh, it's not the, um, the a lot of these films at this time too are you know they they're trying to rally you and make you feel good about what happened, mm -hmm. and um, I think Hitchcock doesn't. I mean, um, we'll talk about a couple of the films that it, they, there's they have the Hollywood you know kind of happy ending. But it feels really tacked on sometimes. Yeah. Like, you know, that, hey, this is maybe not what they really wanted. How they really wanted to end the movie. Um, and I got that a lot from these era films, um, no matter whom it is. You know, it could it could be a Gary Cooper film or whatever. Um, uh, you have, they, they have a message and at the end. They go, oh, wait, this has to end, ha end happy. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, oh, here's here comes the ship. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Like, we're saved or yeah. America will prevail. Exactly. And, um what what I did like too about the Hitchcock films is that the villains aren't really cartoony. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know they're not uh, they're not broadly drawn stereotypes. Exactly, yeah. and <laughs> and you know uh, one of the films um, that we'll talk about they have a moment where the characters have a, a moral dilemma, and they and they choose to um, 
be good people. Yeah. And there's several instances throughout the, the film that are pretty shocking that um, you would expect a Nazi to do. Yeah. Um, but you're like, oh, maybe this is the one good Nazi. <laughs> um, <laughs> what have but, we learned, Ryan? There but, are no good Nazis. <laughs> no, I mean, but there's are charismatic ones. I mean, yeah, yeah. Conrad yeah. Veidt in Casablanca. Yeah. I mean, well, charismatic or terrifying. I guess well, the line I think, is blurred I, there. I think it's blurred, but I mean, I think it, it plays well. So yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Um, the films you chose, and also because two of them don't actually take place during World War Two, right? But they are World War Two films. It's really, it's yeah. really fascinating, and we can dive into that. But the the there was a caveat I was going to make with this, or like, a, or disc, I guess it's a disclaimer up front. Um, you know, as you said, these films that we're going to discuss, Hitchcock's one of the few filmmakers that doesn't succumb to the overt stereotypes yeah. that are involved and we've had discussions about especially how japanese people are treated in mm -hmm. films of this era and if you watch the foreign foreign correspondent uh criterion blu-ray there's a featurette with mark harris who wrote five came back um he's now writing for vanity fair a mm -hmm. uh, great entertainment writer but he talked about how the how those stereotypes were both Passed and rejected in various different forms, um, but the but the the amazing thing is is that Hitchcock doesn't really succumb to it, and if anything, he shifts to the to the to the most opposite end of it imaginable. And also at this time, Hitchcock's not just making World War II films; he's also making other films like Shadow of a Doubt, Spellbound, um, even Suspicion, and and it actually goes even up to um, to Notorious, mm -hmm. which we've already discussed, and is kind of like a epilogue to this discussion but uh the bottom line is is that you have a lot of there's there's jingoistic attitude in these films but you know hitchcock being an international filmmaker with you know first being in britain and then coming to america his view is a little more broad and less focused centrally yeah. on the american front but he, i mean in um in one film we'll talk about i mean he has the british and the americans working together yeah and uh he, it's it's interesting when I'm watching this because these films, because it seems like he he do, he loves doing the man on the run kind of movies, mm -hmm. and then it's really perfected in North by Northwest. And I thought he learned a lot of lessons in the films that we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's, in making North by Northwest. It's funny that you mentioned North by Northwest because um, without this first film we discuss, we don't have a North by Northwest technically, um, and um, you know. Uh, on this show, we've been a little lax on talking about the early uh, Hitchcock years. And actually, a previous episode on The Lady Vanishes with Corinne talks about what we're about to talk about a little bit, like in a little bit more of an overt fashion. Um, but during the Gamo British um, period that Hitchcock was making films over in England before he comes to America to work for a ephedamine addict, <laughs> I will never drop that. He, um, uh, he makes primarily spy pictures. Uh, international intrigue and espionage pictures that have a double uh, double meaning to them. They're both entertainment and escapist fare, but they are also coded messages for the situation going on in Europe at the time. Um, they are done in such a way that does not directly address the issue of the Nazis' rise to power in 1933 and then their eventual dominance over over europe and threatens uh, and the threatening of of britain itself um a bit of background on that info is that um 
in in England it's a little different, but in America, uh, in America specifically, we were at ice. We were primarily isolationist after World War One, and the uh, Senate and Congress at the time. Um, was very, very hard on Hollywood if they were going to broach any subject relating to Nazi Germany um, and anything regarding the potential for war or rallying to war. So a lot of filmmakers and studio heads had to be careful and clever with how they addressed the issue of impending war without directly referencing things. Um, Warner Brothers was the one to kind of break out of the mold completely in 1938 with Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which is an Edward G. Robinson film uh, that I suggest people check out because it's the first one to really call it out for what it is without using allegory and metaphor. Um, so, But Hitchcock in Britain, everyone's aware of the situation, but there is still... Uh, they're still in a situation where they're not trying to ruffle any feathers. So a lot of the villains and spies in Hitchcock's early work are basically placeholders for the Nazis and uh, the different forms of fascist uh, leadership uh, that's emerging in Europe. And the first film we're going to discuss is arguably one of the most classic Hitchcock films of all time. Uh, it's The 39 Steps uh, from 1935, uh, starring Robert Donat, Madeline Carroll, Lucy Mannheim, and Godfrey Terrell. If you are to find a Hitchcock film that most people have probably seen just by bootleg alone, it's probably The 39 Steps. Um, and uh, the film um, is based off of the novel The 39 Steps by John uh, John Buchan. Um, the, the film lifts a lot of stuff from the book, but kind of rewrites a lot of different elements. Um, and the final script by Charles Bennett and Ian Hay is very much, I would say one of the many basis for what we consider entertainment escapist entertainment today. Um, you know, Robert Donat's a very charming fellow that we follow him on his journey, an average man caught up in above average circumstances. It's a formula that would later be perfected as Brian mentioned by North by Northwest. What's interesting about 39 steps is that, Amidst its plot, Hitchcock is able to weave in a message about the impending threat of Nazi Germany. Yeah, the it's, it's interesting watching it because it's a pretty early film in Hitchcock's uh, filmography. It was 35, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so it's about and, 10 years after he really yeah, starts. And um, when I when I st started watching it, I didn't get a Hitchcock vibe right away. Mm -hmm. Um but then when uh, the the story starts slowly unfolds and there's the murder. Murder. Yes. The um, murder of Annabella Smith. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, th then I'm starting to get a little more of a Hitchcock vibe because uh, he has a, a, an amazing shot. Actually, there's three great shots I love in this movie. Mm -hmm. And they happen pretty early in the film. Um, one is when they go into the apartment, she asks him to turn the mirror. <laughs> and... Uh, the way it's framed and the way it's shot is y you can see why he's one of the greatest directors yeah. and how he's able to put things into frame because it sounds silly, but it, you know, he walks over and he grabs the mirror and he turns it, but you never catch the camera yep. and it moves in a subtle way. And then when I was really, uh, that was the first like uh, moment where I realized that, Oh, this is a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. And uh, when she comes in uh, murdered, and she, you know, she falls over the bed or the couch. I can't remember which one it is. And yeah. it's the bed. Yeah. Yeah. He walks over and she has something in her hand mm -hmm. and the shot of the just the hand holding the map. 
I, I think is classic Hitchcock. It's telling you a lot. Yeah. With nothing in the frame except a hand holding a piece of paper. Yeah, and it's and it's specifically it's it's again back to the meticulous nature where each frame is pretty much pre-planned in pre-production prior to filming it. Um, the you know the 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 basics around you know the making of a Hitchcock film is that it's storyboarded to death, mm-hmm. and then basically it's just apply actors here. Well, it works because you know most of his frames and every one of his movies tells a story. Mm-hmm. No matter if it's an establishing shot, no, it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's it's telling you a story, and yeah. I think that's where his. You know, they say master of suspense, but I'd say master of the art of filmmaking because <laughs> he, it's 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 very subtle. Mm. Um, and, you know, like I said, the 39 steps, when I watched the first 10, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. I said, oh, this is early Hitchcock. And I can I don't get a lot of Hitchcock in it, but it slowly evolves into a Hitchcock film. Yeah. Um, and it, that, that that those moments when he's, you know, talking to her in the apartment and even just him making her dinner and little things like that that most people i don't know when they watch films don't pay attention to i really pay attention to in his films yeah because how he frames things how he sets up the shots how he where he places the camera yeah i think is how he utilizes food (laughs) and utilizes food um it's it's a tribute to him as an artist because you can see the care that goes into each shot yeah where like i've seen mostly his later stuff so i'm used to that yeah. being just the norm whether it's in suspicion and he's doing like the spin around or you know in psycho i still think his greatest shot is uh the dude falling down the stairs in psycho I think oh yeah marty balsam falling down the stairs yeah. backwards yeah, yeah that yeah. rig is amazing yeah so it's little things like that i'm used to but then you realize that he's had you know 40 years to build up to that and <laughs> practice you could, makes perfect <laughs> and and you can see you know the him looking at the map and her, him remembering this is, you know, the 39 steps and you need to go to Scotland and things like that is, is very interesting. Robert Donat's just like, what? no, <laughs> I do not. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's actually funny because like, you know, breaking down the plots of these films will be rough because there's like a lot packed in, but we'll go briefing. But, you know, the introduction of Pamela in the film uh, is very much a precursor to what we get with North by Northwest and Eva Marie Saint. Mm. Um, you know, two people who kind of like a mismatch pairing. Um, this one actually falls in line a little bit more with what he would do three years later with the lady vanishes where the leading man and the leading woman clash and butt heads at first. And then they slowly come together. Um, and the scene with um, uh, Donat and Madeline Carroll in the hotel room mm. is specifically condensed in the lady vanishes to an interaction prior to getting on that train. But the impact is there of just the screwball comedy British style that builds up and makes us love those two. Yeah. You know, uh, the 39 steps isn't funny. It's, it's it's a really serious film and that's why it's, it's when you see North by North, North by Northwest first, you see the groundwork for that film. Yeah. If, the they wanted to make a comedy action spy thriller, which North by Northwest is, and then you get see this one, and this is just a spy thriller. Yeah, and I mean it's well made. It's a it's a really great film. And we should uh, note there are moments of humor, but it's not consistent through. No, it's yeah. because uh, the you know they're not asking that of the lead actor. No, no, his job is to facilitate you to get you to point A to point B. Yeah, and um, you know going along the way, meeting the lady in Scotland and the. Um, 
the subtle hints of the husband thinks he's having an affair. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he says, okay, give me money and I won't tell you, tell the cops where you're at. And then he tells the cops where he's at. Um, it's, 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 and I'll tell you, like, I mean, the, the, the allegories that we get within that and what lead to North by Northwest. Um, one of the most obvious ones in, from a visual scale is the auto gyro sequence. Mm. Uh, when that thing's flying through the air and chasing him. Yeah. What do we get back in 1959? We get a crop dusting plane trying to, you know, hunt down a handsome fella. Yeah. I mean, it's. But it, that, that's what, you know, that's what I mean. In this film, you can see the Hitchcock in it mm-hmm. if you've seen his other stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool seeing him grow as a filmmaker. I mean, I, I was reading about the 39 steps before I came here, and it's. I, I don't know. I forget what. Uh, newspaper, but it ranked at the fourth greatest British film of all time, and that and that's a that's a aesthetic that matches. Like, I mean, a lot of Hitchcock films are listed on those kind of lists for a reason. Yeah, and it, you know, it's uh, he uses things so well. You know, when they're chasing him through the moors in Scotland, mm-hmm. um, the foreground and the background, and it's it's really cool. It's uh, you know, he, the thing I miss about films nowadays is you know you know it's fake. You know, when you're watching the Hitchcock and he's running through the moors, but there's something really cool about it. Yeah, there's there's character that I think sometimes when people are lazy and they use CGI for it, that's missed a lot. Yeah. And and that's what I miss. I, I had this conversation with with my wife and my dad. My dad doesn't understand how I can watch these movies and, <laughs> and because, he, you know, my, my dad looks at it and he says, you know, it's really stilted dialogue. It's really um, static. Yeah. Um. I would disagree. I, I, yeah. think, I, I think people just assume that because uh, most of the films from Hollywood's golden era, the, the plot isn't driven by the action. Yeah. The action is driven by the plot. Yeah. So if it's in 39 Steps and he's just in Scotland talking to this lady and he's he's not a bad dude. He's like, you know, I'm on the run and um, people think I murdered this lady. I didn't murder her. Um, and you set up the action that way and, right. and it's not boring you know it's it, but people see it and they just see black and white and they see people talking and and there is more dialogue in these type of films but um that's where they get really great yeah and it, and there's a misconception that you know the stiltedness misconception mm-hmm. as is one i think is mainly attributed should if you're going to attribute it to anything it would mainly be comedies but not all comedies yeah. like it's just and it also you know, the stigma comes primarily because as film progresses into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, things become much more kinetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the thing to always remember with Hollywood, Golden Age Hollywood films is that you're watching a medium literally learning yeah. film by film. And that's why I think the great films from that era really stand out. Yeah. Um, it's something like The Wizard of Oz where you, you watch it nowadays and it's such a great film mm. and you see the template that is laid for everything. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, even in the 39 steps, I can, that the man on the run is the stuff at the fourth bridge. Yeah. That's an action sequence. Yeah. That's a pure action sequence. And I, I think if people actually would just want, and it, it, Zach, you know, because we both love this era of filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, that if people just gave it a chance, I think people would really enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's mainly why, like I, when I, when I sell Casablanca to people, it's not, hey, watch this great romantic movie. Mm-hmm. I tell them, hey, watch Humphrey Bogart shoot some Nazis. Yeah. And that seems to pique their interest more than yeah. telling them it's the greatest romantic movie ever made, yeah. which it is. But <laughs> take that gone with the wind. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it, it, it is tough to sell it on stuff. I can think it's easier sometimes with like 
I mean, not to bring up your arch nemesis Orson Welles, it's easier sometimes to sell that because his shots are so obviously visual. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, if you were to, I mean, and Hitchcock's much easier because I think it's he's really so accessible great. because yeah. his films. The, the, the reason I think Hitchcock is accessible at this time or any time in his career is even when he's making a comedy for a lack of a better word, there's still a lot of intrigue to it. Yeah. And he gets the best people to work with him. And yeah. it's, it's, it, it, whether it's uh, Jimmy Stewart, you know, and because it, 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 rear window, there's not much to it. What do you mean? It's, it's about how I don't want to marry a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a big film. It's, no, no, it's, it's very condensed. It's all takes place inside that room. Yeah. It, and, it, it never, uh, from a, point of view perspective never leaves his apartment exactly and so to tell a story like that and tell it what great is a tribute to him and the people he works with behind the scenes of writing films that will keep your interest and i think if people would um that's why your your podcast is a good thing is you know get going on this hitchcock because i think he's really accessible yeah uh if you're going to do golden age hollywood he's even, he, his 30 stuff is now i mean i've seen a couple of them now are is really good yeah and then he gets really great in the 40s and then he just continues yeah through the 50s and 60s yeah and then like and now granted the 60s is where things fall off but there is that he even his later work that's not particularly wonderful uh, and even a lot of his earlier silent stuff, um, The Lodger withstanding, there's stuff to it. Mm -hmm. And the big part of it is that Hitchcock understands how to entertain an audience while maintaining his craft. And how many directors were successful in silent era and then made it to sound? Uh, not, not not as many. Just maybe Chaplin and Hitchcock? Chaplin, well, King Vidor. Um, and you've got, I mean, Todd Browning technically did, yeah. but Todd Browning also fell off hard. Uh, partially due to the subject he chose for his last film. Because, <laughs> like uh, I mean, I love the movie Freaks. That's a hard movie to sell in the 30s. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's a hard movie to sell today. You could not make Freaks no. anymore at all whatsoever, for good reason. Yeah. But, um, uh, it, you know, I mean... A lot of I mean a lot of directors just by necessity had to like John Ford started in silent films. Oh, yeah. um, John Ford's great. And you know I mean there's you know there's a consistency of people moving through those. Um, and I I think like a lot of the people that came into directing on uh, starting under sound films like people like Houston and stuff, you know they're you know they 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 learned from prior experience, but they also are combining other elements from things that they've learned. Mm -hmm. So this craft is ever evolving and ever changing. Um, you know, Chaplin, Chaplin made the best of it because he kind of refused to go to sound up until the very last minute with the great dictator. Yeah. Um, Hitchcock, you know, he revels in silent cinema so much that a lot of his films have moments of pure and utter oh, silence yeah, yeah. where the sound is so select that it feels like a silent film. It's almost like Hitchcock understands, uh, the space really well. Yeah. A good, uh, a good modern example of that, honestly, is a beautiful day in the neighborhood when, uh, yeah. Tom Hanks and, um, uh, guy who's hanging out with Tom Hanks. I <laughs> yeah. cannot remember his name. I know, it's horrible. It's so weird. He's a great actor though. He is. Um, but they're in a dining, uh, they're in a diner together and, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers asks for like just a moment of silence or something. And they play that scene, in a Hitchcockian way or a yeah. silent film way where you have to respond to people's emotions on their face and not what they're oh, saying. Yeah. I think the pull in to Tom Hanks and that is very Hitchcockian. Yeah. You it, know, cause they, he, um, he does the Hitchcock is really good at the pulling in and focusing on stuff mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. 
a very sleight of hand. It's not a it, magician. Yeah, it's not necessary, but like it it it, it adds to the character. Like, the thing with Hitchcock is, like, everything's the construction of it seems so simple, but those a- added elements are things you're not noticing right away and you notice right afterward. Um, you know, these the, you know, the meticulous details, as I discussed from the Rear Window episode, but also just, you know, the use of the MacGuffin, the use of the mm-hmm. bomb under the table, um, the use of music or no sound or, um, you know, a, a crafted dialogue that matches thematic elements that he... Uh, is attracted to whether it's mother issues spies or cool blondes you know like those are elements that like there's a familiarity to him but he's always found a way to change it up each time yeah and you know the 39 steps in particular is a great summary of hitchcock's british career um if you look at all the films uh that he makes before this and after this in the british period specifically when talkies enter um a lot of them feel exactly like this. The man mm-hmm. who knew too much yeah. um, is a little darker than 39 yeah. Steps. He seems to get a little lighter as he's going on. Then he delves back into dark yeah. with Jamaica in, but that's not as effective. Uh, but then he goes back up with Rebecca, and that that's you know that's where the American craft starts to take yeah. hold. Um, and with the 39 Steps... You know, as Robert Donat and Madeline Carroll go through the plot, by the time we get to the very end, the the MacGuffin is re- is revealed, mm-hmm. um, or I, I guess it's it it's not going to certainly matter to us, but it it's a MacGuffin that I feel is the most prescient because the MacGuffin is the fact that that international spies are stealing secrets from British aircraft um, resources. So Mr. Memory is uh, the person they're after because he knows what the 39 steps are and he decodes the message for them. Mr. Memory gets shot in the end in a huge theater setting, which this is a consistent thing also in Hitchcock's films, especially in the early periods, um, is that there's always some kind of climax or a big set piece set in a theater where something violent happens. Yeah, and in our 39 steps, it starts in the theater with chaos and it ends in the theater with chaos. Mm -hmm. And it's it's pretty great yeah. the, the the yin and yang of each scene yeah because you, when you go back at the end you know <laughs> what what's transpired so it adds a little more oomph to it oomph to it yeah, yeah. the back to one is a little bit more enhanced mm-hmm. it's, it's and it's a that's a technique that coen brothers use all the time oh, yeah. um watch inside lewin davis guys mm-hmm. it gets better when you realize it's all on a loop uh, <laughs> but um and actually it's a film that we didn't uh label for this discussion but i will bring it up real quick as sabotage um which is um, not saboteur sabotage mm-hmm. uh it was made in 36 and that's where the bomb under the th- table um yeah. element is done wrong and hitchcock kicks himself in the pants going well fuck fuck it fuck <laughs> but um uh there's pro- poignant scenes in that film that take place in a movie theater and specifically utilizing a walt disney cartoon as a audible aesthetic to the character's emotion it's who killed cock robin mm-hmm. um and that and to give you that context is like there are films in the early period and in the later period for hitchcock where he uses the theater aesthetic as a tool yeah. Um, and it, it, it comes to great effect in this one because there's a world audience knowing that there's something mysterious going on yeah. within Britain's ranks and they don't know what it is. And then the reveal when Mr. Memory in his dying breath starts revealing what the 39 steps are and says like it's an organization of spies set mm-hmm. to infiltrate Britain's Air Force and it trails off. Yeah. And there's a clever way to get your 
hey what? and that's it, the and that's his propaganda it's not the it's not the overt yeah it's it's, it's the subtle it's the allegory it's mm-hmm. it's it's the only way hitchcock can say fucking nazis are coming <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you know time passes hitchcock does his other films and again lady vanishes really steps up the game when it comes to putting a more direct face on the nazi villain yeah. villainry but also in that film they're not called nazis um, and a lot of different things aren't directly referred to Germany uh, up until our next film, which is Foreign Correspondent. Mm-hmm. Now, Foreign Correspondent, to give a little background, um, as I've mentioned before, Hitchcock went to work for an addict. And um, in the process, um, David O. Selznick would loan Hitchcock out to other studios or production chiefs to make their films because he would make a tidy buck off of it because – I mean, you know, and I know I make the joke, but the thing is, is that Hit- Selznick was just as meticulous as Hitchcock, but Selznick was like on another level of his overpreparedness and like attention to the production and supervising it was to the point where he didn't have an output the same as other studios. And in fact, a lot of his films, um, I mean, Gone with the Wind being the best example, are ones that other studios buy to distribute to their theaters. Mm-hmm. Like, Gone with the Wind is not an MGM production, but it is an MGM property. So it kind of delves into two different sides. It's why Warner Brothers owns the rights yeah. to that is because the library for MGM went over to Warner Brothers. Um, but uh, Hitchcock is loaned out to Walter Wanger uh, to make Foreign Correspondent uh, from 1940, same year as Rebecca. Also gets nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, in the same year that Rebecca is nominated for as many Academy Awards did as he has two Best Pictures in the Best Picture line. Two totally different films. Two totally different films. Now, um, we'll get this right off the bat. I mean, obviously, Rebecca deserves to win that Oscar. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of me that wanted foreign correspondent to win because i really like this movie a lot and it's a and it's a film that has grown on me over the years because it's you know as we've talked about like it's not traditional hitchcock in the in the strictest sense because it is also a world war ii movie but it's grown on me because of my appreciation of all the other elements um the the background on uh foreign correspondent is walter wanger has been trying to make this property for a while and uh, the idea of just rallying to war. And now Walter Wanger, an independent producer, mainly worked through United Artists. And United Artists was formed and founded by Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and um, D.W. Griffith. Um, <laughs> but he, um, uh, but they, they were, unlike the other studios, they were a lot more relaxed um, and less intrusive. Um, the only intrusion they had to make was on behalf of what Congress and other people would tell them when it came to the subject of war. Uh, obviously, Chaplin would break the hell out of that with the Great Dictator because if there's anything that's on the nose, it's the Great Dictator. But beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> Everybody movie. loved making fun of Hitler. Oh, from oh God, first. dude, we still love doing. I, oh, yeah. I'll do it every day. Yeah, um, have to. Go see Jojo Rabbit, guys. It's it's better than people are giving credit for. Um, but um. But yeah, Walter Wanger bought the rights to a memoir called Personal History. It's by a journalist named Vincent Sheehan. Um, and he went through several adaptations. Nothing's fitting correctly. Hitchcock comes into the picture and is able to craft what is normally the Hitchcock spy movie into a propaganda film. Now, the caveat with Foreign Correspondent is that of all the films... It it technically might be the most uneven in its approach, and its ending is a little tacked on. 
but it's also the one prop purely propaganda film that's able to kind of blend the difference between subtlety and um uh direct uh direct approach um basically like it comes out in 1940 uh, a year later where uh, pearl harbor is attacked and america is no longer isolationist like over literally overnight um in this film foreign correspondent by the time you get to the end germany is directly um directly referenced so uh but it did be by the but from the beginning of the film all we know is that war is impending in europe and everything's kind of weaved around a little bit not always to the um the greatest effect but you can see it it's there um foreign correspondent as i said directed by you know who <laughs> uh walls ranger producer written by james uh, or charles bennett and joan harrison joan harrison um uh uh frequent collaborator with Hitchcock, uh, secretary, then turned producer. Um, And Charles Bennett, who's a regular writer with Hitchcock at the time. And then you have James Hilton and Robert Benchley coming on for dialogue. And Robert Benchley in particular uh, is uh, a guy that is, he was part of the Algonquin Roundtable, one of the most prolific writers of his era. Um, Dies dies in the mid-40s, and one of his last film appearances is Road to Utopia, where he narrates the movie. (laughs) Um, And in... Uh, foreign correspondent um, Benchley plays Stebbins, um, the older foreign correspondent who gives Joel McRae uh, mm-hmm. his swagger. But uh, it's interesting that you know a lot of different writers come together to kind of craft a story that tackles two different elements. A really young Joel McRae. Oh yeah, I, I mean <laughs> Joel McRae, sexy, sexy. We'll you know we'll, we'll get to, we're going to go a little bit into the plot of foreign correspondent because it, since it being the most overt, it warrants a bit of a discussion. So. The film starts um, outside of newspaper offices, and the chief editor is, you know, dissatisfied with the foreign correspondents that are oh, providing him no... That's the name of the movie. Oh! oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, they said the title of the movie. <laughs> I love the Superman four quest per piece gag. The family guy, like, oh, that's why they call it that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... Uh. <laughs> this, but the the chief editor is just like, I'm tired of people not giving me a direct answer about war. So... Um, you know, he they he's trying to rattle off like who can we send that's a little bit more of a direct reporter who will get some facts. And he said like, well, we have uh, our our crime beat reporter Johnny Jones. Love if it. you could think of a more American cipher <laughs> name <laughs> than Johnny Jones, that's awesome. Like Mark Harris in the uh, 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 featurette, kind of just like you might as just call him like Mister America or like just like something like anything it's it is a cypher character but he doesn't play it that way that's the mm-hmm. thing like he plays it as a character yeah it's just that name sucks which is why they do change it to to uh um, better huntley <laughs> I, I i like huntley havenstock is a fine name i'll name my kid huntley <laughs> um but yeah uh he he's a crime beat reporter who uh is at, uh, under threat of being thrown out because he beat up a cop. <laughs> so, like, m- before we get into it, Ryan, as an officer of the law, would you let Joel McRae beat you up? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Especially with his name, Johnny Johns. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> beat me up, Joel. Beat me up. <laughs> uh, but, no, so he gets sent overseas to interview um, uh, Van Meer, played by Albert Basserman, who's uh, the, the, lead, the, the lead presence in this summit for peace and figuring out if we're going to war. Uh, and in the process uh, gets caught up in a spy caper where uh, secrets are being stolen, things are being done that lead to war. 
specifically um, under the auspices of one evil Herbert Marshall. <laughs> um, who, Sounds evil. Well, in real life, though, one of the biggest uh, ralliers for war bond support and uh, 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 entertaining troops uh, during World War II. One of the, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about how Carol Lombard was one of those mm. first to jump in. Herbert Marshall, if you listen to a lot of radio programs of the world, of the war era, which are kind of hard because their quality is scratchy, he's on a lot of them, you know, pushing mm. the bond rally like it's crazy. And it is a very important part of that mm. effort. Um, so the, the nature of foreign correspondent is very much, I want to tell this spy story, but also war. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the fascinating part is it, it's basically telling everyone the coming of the World War Nazi style before it really blew up in everybody's face. Yeah. Um, I mean, Germany has already invaded Poland by now and yeah. started their march through Europe. Yeah. But it's a way of kind of waking up um, America and Britain like, hey, the, <laughs> this is happening. Dude. Yeah. Look. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a filmmaker and I can see it. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's it's a fascinating film. It's a, it's a movie I bought blind. Yeah. Um, we used to have a store here called Tradesmart and they're going out of business. Oh, good old Tradesmart. And uh, so their movies were, I, they weren't the really cheap ones at the time because there's no way this movie would have lasted. Yeah. But uh, it was the Digipack Criterion Foreign Correspondent where it folds out and it's really nice. <sighs> And uh, <laughs> so, you know, I got that and The Man Who um, Knew Too Much because they were both there. I'm like, I'll get Hitchcock movies. Who cares? And yeah. the Criterions. Yeah. And as one that I watched, I said, this movie's pretty good. It's, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I still I, I think Rebecca's better, but uh, it's as a spy thriller, a one that doesn't start out as one. Yeah. And then slowly evolves into a man way out of his element <laughs> and uh, and a young guy and trying to. uh Break a story, I guess. Yeah. And get everybody to listen to the story he's trying to break. is It's a, it's a pretty great story. And um, uh, Lorraine Day is... Yeah, uh, Lorraine Day playing Carol Fisher. The... She's, uh, she's in Mr. Lucky starring Cary Grant. Ooh. <laughs> oh, my God. This is, so Mr. Lucky is the one that I still need to watch. Yeah, I'll have to let the you one that one. you told me is a nice little dark comedy yeah. there during it, World War II. Yeah. That and, you know, when Cary Grant's mean, I love it. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So it's... it's uh, She's really great in it. She's... Um, you know, there's there's a reason why at this time that the uh, the actresses were in more demand than the actors mm -hmm. because uh, Hitchcock was great at making you like them, but there was that you know femme fatale to them and yeah that the, that tinge of it, we we've it's been referred to as like icy blonde or cool mm -hmm. or cool yeah. character and whatnot like and it's you know there's there it's. I don't call it frigidity, but there is an element of just like they hold their own. Yeah. Now, does now whether or not that follows through in their arc or their agency is another question. Film sure. by film. it's a case by case basis. Yeah. Um. In the in the birds episode that people have heard by now, you know, we talk about how Tippy Hedren has way more agency than you'd expect going into the film initially, and it only disappears when the bird attack comes near the climax, like yeah. the huge one on the house. Um. Uh, along amongst other depressing things we talked about with that movie, <laughs> um, but um, uh, but uh, you know, in Lorraine Day's not alone. She has Foliot, <laughs> lowercase double F, played by George Sanders, and mm -hmm. George Sanders also in Rebecca yeah. playing the devious cousin. Uh, George Sanders would end up playing a lot of villains down the line, but I love him in this movie above yeah. any other movie he's been in because he's just the wise cracking sidekick. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know it. He, 
Hitchcock is really good to you if you were good to him. <laughs> so uh, he has a lot of people show up in his films a lot. Yeah. And you can always tell when their relationship soured. Yeah. Because it, they're suddenly not there. They're anymore. suddenly not there anymore. Yeah. And, and it, it's unfortunately it happened a lot with his uh, female stars. Yeah. There's um, reasons for that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, someone like Stewart or Grant uh, that pop up continuously. Yeah. If they found if you found a way to work with him. Yeah. I mean, you'd be rewarded with his best films. Yeah. I mean, the only reason Grant really stops is because Grant stops films. Altogether, oh, yeah. He just stopped so. making movies. Yeah, exactly. And Stewart. Well, Stewart's interesting because Stewart kept working, but also Stewart's Stewart's son's death in during oh, yeah. during Vietnam, like definitely pushed him in a different direction. And also at the end of the day, like a lot of the films that Hitchcock was making probably weren't catered specifically to something that Stewart's yeah. like he always he did find roles the right roles for the right people. Yeah. Like he never it's kinda like Tarantino. Like Tarantino will talk about an actor that he loves, but he doesn't necessarily cast them because they may not be right for the role. Yeah. Um listen to him talk about Chris Pine. I want Chris Pine in a Tarantino movie more than <laughs> anything. I just hope the story fits. Um but yeah, so you have uh, Folliette who's helping them out and you know the the uh the thing about foreign correspondent above anything else is um Hitchcock is known for kind of upping the ante on visual effects um now some of these have been criticized over the years whether it's the use of you know rear projection um mm. and different elements of uh uh how he gets certain like camera camera movements um, you know, it's funny at the beginning of foreign correspondent, we start at the top of the globe offices and we dive through into the window and yeah. then it fades. And that moment is more, uh, smoothed out, if you will, in psycho when mm -hmm. psycho opens. So these are elements that he's always been testing and always been trying to perfect. And Psycho's the closest it gets. But the bottom line is when they made psycho, there wasn't enough money to do the elaborate shot that he wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, practically it didn't work like it was yeah. a, like a practical issue too um but the visual effects in foreign correspondent are among the best visual effects you're going to oh, find yeah. in a film of the era and i mean the the bottom line is is that if you watch that film uh there's a sequence in a windmill uh where uh, uh joel mccray has found where the people who assassinated uh, Van Meer have gone to, or so they think, or so he thinks that Van Meer has been assassinated. He hasn't. Um, and he goes to this window. Spoilers. Yeah, you know, the movie's only 80 years old, They've Zach. seen the movie if they're <laughs> listening to this podcast. They know what's up. Um, but, yeah, the visual, but, but the visual effects is like they have a windmill, so they shot on three different locations. You have... Seal Beach being used for the exterior combined with matte painting and miniature. Then you have a full-on exterior for the closer shots of the windmill on a studio soundstage. And then inside the windmill is a whole other soundstage. So all these elements combine to make one specific illusion and imagery. Um, and the, uh, the, 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 the creme de la creme of the visual effects is the final airplane sequence oh, at the yeah. end. It's like, it's the one thing that requires the most technical acumen. And among the things that you learn as you go into it is, um, you know, that plane nosedives. And what Hitchcock did is have pilots diving a, f uh, a, uh, a plane down toward the water and then pulling up at the last minute to get that visual effect. And then those cameras, uh, those shots, that footage was used for rear projection. So you have a lot of different elements in order to create a realistic story for a film that's not, you know, 
necessarily requiring effects extravaganza. Like when we think of effects films today, no. I mean, Avengers comes to mind uh, or anything Marvel related or um, Michael Bay related and whatnot. But like, you know, the, the, the visual effects are called upon based yeah. on the story. But like just for a spy picture oh, yeah. where, you know, there's not a lot of stuff required. Like it, it's it's rare that you see a film today of a drama sort or even a spy sort if it's not James Bond to have the the care and attention to visual effects that this film does. Yeah, and it just goes back to who Hitchcock is. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever going to... Um... What if I crashed a plane? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't... What, if I, no, what if I did it, Alma? What if I did Because <laughs> he's so concerned about uh, how things look that he is an innovator as far as the technical side is not surprising. Yeah, and it's... I mean, it's 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 a situation where he's able to create a reality that's impactful for that audience just by kind of throwing them into the escapist fair. Mm-hmm. And this is a balanced film between escapist fair and propaganda. So, um, you know, the film comes out um, when it comes out. When you look at the ending of the film, it is tacked on, but it's important and it doesn't feel unearned. That's yeah. the thing. It doesn't feel unearned. Yeah. But the final uh, element of this is that they go through this spy story and Joel McRae is now aware of what's going on and wants to spread the message. And the last shot is in a radio is a radio broadcast that's going out in, Br- in Britain, but bombs are dropping. And so they're going into blackout mode. But America's still listening. And so yeah. they give that he gives his final call to arms. Um, the end, you know, Walter yeah. Ranger production. But, um, you know, film comes out. It doesn't win Best Picture, obviously, because um, Rebecca does. How many times has a director or a, of the same film been nominated for Best Picture in the same year? Ooh. I'd have to look that up. I'm not sure. Dude, that's pretty rare. If, you know what's funny? It feels like Clint Eastwood would have done that, but then I look at the record, and then I'm like, nope, didn't happen, bub. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you usually don't make two movies a year. Yeah, well, so. I mean, it's fun- well, I mean, it's funny because like, Eastwood technically would have had a chance in 06 with mm-hmm. Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, yeah, yeah. but the problem is that I like Flags of Our Fathers, but it's not as good as Letters from Iwo Jima. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but... Um, yeah, you you have um, you know the, the 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 film is nominated for six Academy Awards, and it doesn't win for best effects and special effects with by Paul Eager and Thomas T. Moulton for sound. That's like an egregious error. That yeah. seems like, but but again, it's always hard back then in Hollywood because I mean people say it's political now. Back then is ridiculous. <laughs> well, we want to talk about uh, you know here, here I've got some news for people who. Um, think the academy awards were unfair and i'm just going to point this out uh the academy awards was originally founded to stop unions from happening so yeah. they've never cared what the public wanted <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like they never gave a shit um but you know alas you know foreign course content comes out doesn't win anything okay. hitchcock Still goes boohoo yeah. <laughs> he keeps working <laughs> he goes boohoo until his other movie wins and yeah he's all right exactly and so you know 1940 to 1941 you know you know he's he's they're still plugging away. And an important thing to talk about Hitchcock is that the British community had a lot of issues with him not going back overseas to directly make films for the War Department. And the bottom line is, is like, I mean, obviously Hitchcock is over the age for draft mm-hmm. um, and certainly over the weight limit. Um, you know, not, it's not a crack about his weight. It's the bottom line is, is that he was not going to be able to function in that mm-hmm. manner. Um, and there's a lot of discussion over it. And I would recommend you listen to the Secret History of Hollywood um, uh, episodes on Alfred Hitchcock 
to really understand in more detail um, why there was a problem. But the bottom line is, is that other British people felt like he was a traitor. And then there was other British people who were, you know, in the same position as Hitchcock, where they're, 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 yeah, they're in, they're under contract in America. And if they're not required by the draft, it's very hard to convince those studio heads for them to go overseas and do something for that country when they can be making those propaganda mm. films in, in America. Um, and keep in mind, this is all happening. You know, there's a lot of stuff happening before, but also after Pearl Harbor where, you know, Hitchcock would probably have an opportunity to go over there, but he yeah. had just gone to America to make Rebecca. And so it was, and Selznick was not going to let him go. That's the bottom line. Selznick nope. was not going to let him go. <laughs> and, you know, you read stories back then and, and the the movie studios were so I, I don't know if people really understand how much influence they had on people and how not nice they were. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, and, and to be fair, there are th- good things that they did. But oh, yeah. But like, I mean, you can read about what they did to Judy Garland at the yeah. Wizard of Oz and stuff. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, that Judy Garland. Uh, freaking uh, Gene Harlow. Yeah. Um, Olivia de Havilland. Betty Davis. Betty Davis got whipped around by yeah. Jack Warner. Um, and there's an, and another element to also realize within um, Hollywood's involvement with the war is that uh, with the exception of Warner Brothers, a lot of studios didn't pull from their foreign markets until a certain point. Yeah. So there was always a fear that they didn't want to lose their foreign market. Now, Warner Brothers pulled out immediately because they were, you know, they were like, guys, Nazis, don't. And then, well, <laughs> and then Walt, they left. <laughs> well, Walt Disney blames uh, the financial um, disappointment of Pinocchio on the breakout of war because they couldn't distribute it in Europe. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's, there's elements to that. Like with Disney's, you know, Disney's situation is interesting because Disney also around that time is also working on what would be considered the big five. And other than snow white and the seven dwarfs, the big five don't really make much money for it. No. Um, and uh, I mean, Fantasia being the biggest experiment oh, of yeah. them all. Um, and the last studio to actually pull out is MGM. Mm. Um, and I think it primarily because Louis B. Mayer, you know, was stubborn enough to just hold out as long as he could. Um, but, you know, regardless, once World War Two breaks out, you know, that foreign market's gone for the yep. duration of the war. Um, in the time that Hitchcock is left dormant um, to a certain respect regards to war, he starts work on a film called Saboteur uh, from 1942. Uh, and uh, this is, you know. Early on, this is when he starts working. Um, I'm trying to remember his name so I can get it right. His normal production designer, um, Robert Boyle, uh, uh, who starts off as his assistant initially and helps him conceive and design Saboteur. Uh, and during the conception and design of Saboteur, someone walked into the office with them and said, Guys, Pearl Harbor! <laughs> it <laughs> happened! So uh, this film undergoes a lot. Uh, thanks to the breakout of war, and becomes much more overt than even for a correspondent was going to be. Um, so, Saboteur, directed by You Know Who, uh, written by Peter Vertel, Joan Harrison, and Dorothy Parker, another uh, member of the Algonquin Roundtable. Um, now, it's kind of cobbled together from several different drafts, so it's not just one person really uh, committing their time to it. Um, Selznick... Um, was pitched the idea uh, and Selznick gave the okay for a script and he had John Hausman come in to help out with this. And 
um, it it gets kind of sold off by Celtic to Universal, mm-hmm. and Universal brings over Hitchcock because Celtic can make some money. So uh, they put together a ragtag team for this because it's it, there's a lot of Hitchcock regulars in this film, but nothing towards a real like no name today. Um, you have Robert Cummings. Uh, who uh, doesn't have like the the same oomph seventy years later that other actors do? Yeah, Priscilla Lane, who I think is known. Arsenic and old lace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Arsenic and uh, meanest man in the world with Jack Benny. You know, I mean, ha, I know that. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, she, she's beautiful. Yeah, she is. She's beautiful and she's wonderful in this film too. Um, you have Otto Kruger, and then the biggest addition is Norman Lloyd. And Norman Lloyd. Um, is a frequent Hitchcock collaborator who would end up being a producer for the mm. Alfred Hitchcock Presents show and worked with Hitchcock all throughout the years. But Norman Lloyd plays the villain. Yeah. And I must say, when it comes to Saboteur, I think Norman Lloyd's one of the best Hitchcock villains of all time. Oh, I think uh, of the four movies we watched, this was my favorite. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, just because uh, to, when I was watching it, uh, well, one, the Blu-ray is amazing. Yeah. Like, it sounds amazing. It looks amazing. And it's just a traditional Universal release one. So yeah. it's not even like a Criterion restoration. No, but they did a good job of upscaling it and getting it ready. But it, I, I really liked it. I thought the, the intrigue was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny. Um, uh, it, it felt like a Hitchcock movie to me, like, big time. Yeah. Um, the, the dude on the run, I meet... You know, a woman who lives with her blind, lives with her blind <laughs> uncle. uncle. Yeah, <laughs> um, but you know, she's great in it too because a lot of um, characters, if they're not well developed, you know, she's just going to go along with what he's going to do. And she tried multiple times to get away from him and, and even throw him under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, her gradual acceptance of yeah. the truth is interesting for a Hitchcock film because it's more. I think because of the inherent story they're telling, which is mm-hmm. a sab- like sabotage on a war plant. Yeah. Um, you as an audience during World War II era have to be convinced that you, – you even have to be convinced that he's not some kind of double agent working yeah. under false auspices. And you are like, – Priscilla Lane's kind of our POV character yeah. to a certain respect. Like she's, she's our entry point to a certain extent. Um, I mean, Cummings' character, Barry, is not – He's not, like, isolated. Like, we're not distant from him. But, you know, with it being a World War II-era film, you can kind of play that suspicious mm-hmm. angle with him, even though it's quite clear that Norman Lloyd is the... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's well, he... Frank Fry is the villain because I know he's the villain because I see him give some looks there. <laughs> yeah. But they also do... Uh, something they established in The 39 Steps is it gives you the... I call it uh, the fade... Where, you know, he's thinking about something and he picks it up and then he remembers. Yeah. Um, he's like, wait a minute. I remember the uh, <laughs> the ranch I'm supposed to go to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that it's an interesting film, too, because it deals with a group of bad guys. Yeah. And it it says that even like the rich people are the people to look out for. Yeah. And it's a theme that's explored in Hollywood a lot. And it's um, still explored to this very oh, day. Yeah. <laughs> I go to like Eyes Wide Shut or yeah. some where it's a secret cabal of people. Heck, even Ready or Not does it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a secret cabal of people. And you know, the the death of his his friend is pretty horrific. Oh my god, yeah. So let, 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 <laughs> we'll give a brief synopsis of the plot. 
the, the movie is about uh, Barry Kane is uh, uh, falsely accused for uh, setting ablaze a war plant in what would be, to my mind, one of the most holy shit what fire can do scenes in movie <laughs> yeah. history because his friend goes up quick. I know they show it as going, man, that's pretty brutal. And it's and it's a great visual effect yeah. too. It's, it's it's kind of on par with like stuff that Howard Hawks did with Thing from yeah. Another World where you've got that bur- guy in the yeah, body yeah, suit yeah. burning. Um, and Frank Fry's character, or the Frank Fry character played by Norman Lloyd, you know, he's the one who did it, but he black he basically frames Barry and Barry's on the run. Uh, and you know, the the idea of a war plant being sabotaged is a is a legitimate fear post Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Like regardless of the uh the likelihood of another attack directly on America, it's it's very it's very reasonable that something might happen. Sure. Um, you know, regardless of how practical it well, yeah, actually and, was. And they they build it from that, you know, they're gonna sabotage the dam yeah. and because of how much power it can produce and yeah. And it's funny because, like, Nazi spies in particular are, you know, I think a more realistic threat than yeah. any other people we thought were a threat. Yeah. Um, that's a reference to something. Look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the uh, – and so with the idea of even this upper-class elite society being the backers of financiers of these spy rings for Nazi mm-hmm. thugs, um, one – not uncommon from today, but two, yeah. the 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 idea is that it's kind of breaking into the idea that anybody could be uh, a potential threat. Now that's cause for paranoia, but that's the goal of what these films are trying to do. Um, if you want the most overt examples, look up Private Snafu cartoons <laughs> produced by the Warner Brothers uh, Animation Department, written by Dr. Seuss and starring Mel Blanc. And if all those names sound ridiculous, it's because it is kind of ridiculous that they're all together in one room. Um, uh, I will. Or ridiculously awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, and now, granted, they are very much of their time, so please keep that in mind when you watch them. But they are the most overt um, uh, uh, uses to teach the soldiers how to not spread rumors and how to not uh, slip up position. Like on radio broadcasts at the time, you could not, you could not mention the exact location of most bases because it was a military secret. You don't want that stuff being broadcast regardless of long wave or short wave. So uh, something like saboteur is reasonably realistic. And so that's what puts it makes its impact at that time reasonable. Today, it's kind of an interesting examination of the home front during World War Two, because many World War Two films of this era go overseas or somewhere. They start in America and then they end up in another country. This is one of the few that I can find where it's like more of a direct home front um, uh, situation. Uh, and the home front is a you know angle of World War Two that is is discussed but not as much as the battles or the lead-ups or anything like that. Most times when we get to anything directly in America, we're talking Pearl Harbor uh, or even Midway where, like, you know, stuff's kind of, like, intersecting between the two. So Saboteur is very unique in that respect. And Hitchcock, I think, in this film, the patriotism and the propaganda is much more... It's, like, it's the most overt it's ever going to get. Oh, yeah. Um, But... It's 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 justified. It's oh, supremely yeah, yeah. No, justified no, it for the story. Yeah, because it's it's uh, a dude who works in an airplane factory and that they need the airplanes for the war, and he's got to uncover the secret cabal of 
rich people that pay the Nazis to sabotage America. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's a. I think it's a great film. I had a lot of fun watching it, and it's. I mean, there's suspense, intrigue. Uh, it's funny. Um, it's 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 full of it's it's full of vigor. It's even got a. It's, it, bring back to Todd Browning for a second. It's got a caravan. It's yeah. got it's got the sideshow performers there, yeah. and you know, and and unlike unlike freaks, these guys are treated with way more respect somehow. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. no, they. It's, I, I think it's kind of just not even. It's it's it's, it's not, not even it, a thing. It's it's not even remotely an issue. Mm. It's like it's it's a unique aesthetic where they are treated. Uh, I mean, freaks treats the the sideshow performers like humans but this one's even yeah. more austere with it and it's primarily because it's not the point of the movie no. um and then there you also have um as we've discussed in the past episodes you know the homosexual illusions that kind of come through mm-hmm. it and you know hitchcock you know oddly progressive for his era to you know tap into that yeah. angle in a way that most don't now granted it is outdated but it's interesting to know no, that yeah, it's I there. So uh, and it mainly comes from the henchman who's in the car with Robert Cummings, who's talking about when he was a boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, wore, yeah, had long curls, and now the neighbors admired him. I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> right on. <laughs> I yeah. dig it. Um, but, uh, and uh, funny enough, though, um, the original climax was meant to be at a movie theater. Really? And the original movie that they were going to show during this climax was Abbott and Costello's film Ride em Cowboy. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you've gotten to that in your watch no, yet. Yeah, I think that's my next one, actually. So watch it and then just find out, <laughs> would this have worked? <laughs> um, if I've, I mean, I've seen Ride em Cowboy like once, but that's like when you, you know, when you get into Abbott and Costello, you go through all the ones you can find and most of them are on VHS or like scattered DVDs. Yeah. That's why this collection is amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. A... And, I'm, and I'm jealous of you forever. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, Saboteur premieres uh, on a budget of $780,000. It makes uh, $1.25 million in U.S. rentals. So it's a hit. It's a hit. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a solid hit. I mean, uh, reception, it's, uh, this is a quote that I thought was interesting. Uh, did very well at the box office even with its B-list cast. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's Universal and Universal is a studio that has financial problems all the time back <laughs> in this era. Up until the MCA merger, they are always trying to keep the studio afloat. Um, yep. And actually, you know, I mean, you know, it's argued that the monster saved the studio mm-hmm. more than once. But also Abbott and Costello saved that studio uh, and uh, amongst other stars that they just latched on to. Um, so. You know, for them to make a good profit on this, and it's also a studio that didn't have its own chain of theaters, mm-hmm. so they're renting other theater chains. So, one point two five million on this movie is actually a solid return. Yeah, like it's a tidy profit for them. Uh, Bosley Crowther, my least favorite human being uh, from <laughs> film review of the era, he called it a swift, high tension film which throws itself forward so rapidly that it permits slight opportunity for looking back, and it hurdles the holes and bumps which plague it with a with a speed that forcefully tries to cover them up a little snarky but yeah. okay I'll, I'll allow it like he likes it i totally dig it uh, uh time magazine i wanted to point out they, they brought something interesting it's like one hour and 45 minutes of almost simon pure melodrama from the hands of the master uh and the film artful touches serve another purpose 
which is only incidental to saboteur's melodramatic intent. They warn Americans, as Hollywood has so far failed to do so, that fifth columnists can be outwardly clean and patriotic citizens just like themselves. Funny that Time mentions that because if you if they were actually to pay attention to some films that studios were making in Hollywood, you'd realize that they were actually trying to address this issue and were fighting forces that were larger than them. Yeah. So it's it's a very interesting, uh, you know, like you know, you know, and journalism is not always going to hear every story until years later. Sometimes when it comes to Hollywood, but you know, yeah. it's a situation where now we know. Um, and actually, you know, R- critic Rob Nixon for Turner Classic Movies said that this is very similar to North by Northwest in certain regards, in certain respects. Yeah. Uh, I'd certainly say that the climax with Frank Fry falling off the Statue of Liberty <laughs> is almost a direct callback to something like yeah. North by Northwest off of the Mount Rushmore. Uh, the only difference is, is that uh, Cary Grant doesn't pull Frank Fry up into, yeah, he, into, into a train bed. <laughs> now, see, we're talking about being progressive. It would have been progressive. <laughs> Be like, Norman, Cary's going to grab you, and you two are going to lie in bed together. I know it'll mean the end of my career, but I don't fucking care. Anymore. But we're doing it. <laughs> we're, we're fucking doing it. <laughs> so um, a little time goes by. Hitchcock makes other films. Um Amongst the other loanouts he gets to is for 20th Century Fox. Um, Daryl F. Zanuck. Um, and it should be pointed out that 20th Century of Fox was once a studio. <laughs> that, <laughs> that still is. Ish. Was called 20th Century Fox based off of a merger between Fox Movie Town and 20th Century Pictures. Disney should just call it 20th Century Mouse just to piss everybody off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, everybody! Uh, no, so 20th Century Fox technically still is a studio. <laughs> but but um, at the time, they did not uh, make movies for a streaming service. They made, <laughs> they made movies. And um, one of those films was a little film from 1944 called Lifeboat. It's based off of a story by John Steinbeck. Steinbeck Who's helped... Steinbeck again? John Steinbeck wrote of Vice and Oh, Man, okay, right, right, the right. Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> oh, okay, so one of the greatest American novels ever. East of gotcha. Eden. Yeah, I'm, I'm burying the lead a little bit. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, he's he's very he's very well known uh, in, in literary circles. Uh, John Steinbeck wrote the treatment for this film uh, based off of a story that he had wrote. He was very dissuaded to fully involve himself because he had gotten into trouble for being a little too radical mm. at the time. And uh, it's almost as if, though, he was a very good writer that um, uh, was kind of tamped down by right. norms of society. I mean, I honestly think John Steinbeck wouldn't work today because we'd like immediately start trashing him on Twitter. <laughs> unless we, I mean, like, I mean, not me. I would be like, no, nope, I get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, uh, but John Steinbeck writes the treatment and kind of goes away. Joe Swirling comes in and picks up. Uh, the slack and writes the the majority of the screenplay. Um, he was an American theater writer too, so I mean, like you know, he, and they needed someone like that for this one. This is the yeah. film that surprised me a lot because it literally takes place on a lifeboat. Yeah, the it's, whole film. Yeah, it's. I mean, he, the title didn't lie to you. No, it's it's not Jason Takes Manhattan. It's literally <laughs> on a lifeboat the whole time. Now, Jason, I want you to walk <laughs> down Thirty Second Street. <laughs> I would love it if Hitchcock had oh, a Friday the 13th awesome. movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time. This is, I think weird. this has my favorite Hitchcock cameo of ever in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so before we jump into the plot, like, I mean, yes, it takes place on a lifeboat. Yes. Uh, amongst the ads that are being looked at, like with the remaining scattered stuff from this blown up ship, 
uh, is an ad for weight loss. Yeah, and, <laughs> and that Hitch, skinny Hitch and fat Hitch. And the and the background for that is that Hitchcock had indeed lost a lot of weight, mm-hmm. and this was the most convenient way to do the cameo because it's not like you could have. I think the only other way you could do it is have one of those dead floating bodies <laughs> be awesome. Hitchcock floating on his back. <laughs> Cut. Cut. Uh, uh, the, the, the plot is really simple. Yeah. It's uh, a German U-boat sinks a ship, yeah. and they're on a lifeboat. And one of the people they save upon the lifeboat is the captain of the U-boat. Yeah, and the question is, is that is he still loyal to Germany, or is yeah. he just a survivor like anything, anybody else? And uh, we talked about this like an hour ago about uh, moral questions you have to ask yourself. Yeah. Do you let this guy live? And, you know, the American sailor says, no, you know, kill him. Let's get rid of this dude. Yeah. Everyone says, no, you can't do that. He's a POW. You're create, you know, you're Criminal war, war criminal. War, war criminal. There we go. How can I say that word? You are be doing a war crime. War crime. Yeah, war crime, <laughs> I tell you. And, uh, and so why I like this villain in this movie a lot is he doesn't start out as one. Um, it's really subtle. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's some heartbreaking stuff. You know, the lady who carries her baby and her baby's dead. Yeah. And then God. she falls asleep and they, um, you know, they bury the baby at sea and then she wakes up and wants to know where her baby's at. And then, you know, they she hung herself. Then she hung herself on the side of the boat because they tied her down. And... It should be pointed out, you know, Hitchcock's been accused of being dark with films like Psycho, um, uh, the, F- the Birds and Frenzy. Lifeboat might be the darkest oh, because yeah. it's the most real. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the most real. And that's, you know, I, even though I love uh, Saboteur the most of these four films we watched, I think this is maybe the one that I was most impressed with Hitchcock in. Yeah. Because one, it's it's on a lifeboat. There's nothing else in this movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they eventually ships show up and there's some... Blo- Actually, the blowing up of the German ship was pretty impressive. Yeah. But uh, but it's just, you know, I don't know how big the lifeboat is. Eight by ten feet? Well, and, and, and the, you know, within production of all this is, you know, they're on that set and, you know, you're having to kind of break it up yeah. into sections. So, um, any in uh, if you get the Kino Lobor version of Lifeboat, you there's a fun little document, uh, vintage documentary attached to it where they talk about the production of this. But it's just so cool because it, you need a, a playwright because it takes place in I, I call it a bottle scene. Yeah, it's all in one place. No one can go anywhere, and the actors better be up to par. All the actors in this are amazing. Yeah, and uh, it should be pointed out for that for how they're filming that. Um, you know, you're using miniature lifeboat and figurines to plan this out. There are four lifeboats used during the shooting. Rehearsals take place in one. Separate boats were used for close-ups and long shots, and another was for the studio's large-scale tank where the water shots were really yeah. happening. So there's a way to construct this and still have it uh, have the location well, and, and isolated. It's, it's you know? interesting, too, because... Uh, a lot of times it's just like a cloudy sky, but at night they have the stars. And uh-huh. um, again, it just goes back to what I talked about earlier is his planning of shots is just incredible. And this one seems like in a way that it might be the easiest to plan because of the, you know, one location. Yeah. But the truth is, is that you have to make it visually dynamic. And the pacing is so important. And you have to have someone who is as good as Hitchcock to pull this off. Yeah. Because it's, I don't know, an hour and 30 minutes, uh, but you are you can't move. So making it visually interesting is fascinating. I mean, it's with uh, when the sails break and it's having them lay underneath the sails and creating different lighting techniques. And, yeah. Um, things that I, maybe, uh, 
someone who doesn't watch film very much doesn't pick up. Yeah. And I'm no like film snob or anything, but I, <laughs> you know, I, well, that's very clear. <laughs> yeah. no. Um, but I, I appreciate the, the way he sets the camera and how he diff, he chooses different shots and different lighting and yeah, because you have to make it interesting. Yeah. He, he, uh, and it's funny because this film is sort of a precursor to rope and mm. rope is much more direct in its approach. It's also more difficult because of what he's trying to do with rope, but rope, but lifeboat is the experiment of what can you do in primarily one location. Uh, And then rope kind of extends to that. And ropes pre-planning is even more insane because of what he's trying to do. Uh, And then would be perfected by Sam Mendes in 1917. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but yeah, this, uh, the, the film, the cast in this film is fucking incredible. Oh, I want to go. So good. I want to go down one by one, like we haven't with the others, because the cast is so small, but everybody's so important. You have Tallulah Bankhead, uh, frequently troublesome actor. Tallulah Bankhead, mainly mm-hmm. for the stage, but you know she did some films yeah. here and there, uh, playing Connie, uh, the reporter. Uh, you have William Bendix, uh, my favorite, playing Gus. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you've got Walter Seslak, uh, Slezak playing Captain w- Willie. Capitan Willie. Uh, you have Mary Anderson playing Alice. You have John Hodiak playing John Kovac. You have Henry Hole playing Rittenhouse. Um, mm-hmm. He's great in it. You've got Heather Angel as Mrs. Hiley. And you got Canada Lee as Joe. Uh, yeah. And Canada Lee's um, history is very sad because yeah. he was kind of shoved into um, the corner because of his race. And it's and he died really young. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tragedy. And he's amazing in this movie. Oh, he's incredible. Like it's... this, the whole cast is, I mean, when you're making a film like this, your cast better be able to carry each person, no matter how big their role is mm-hmm. better be able to carry their own weight. And what I think is really cool about this film is no one ever mentions, you know, his race. It's never, it's mentioned. never mentioned at all. He's just a dude. Yeah. And he happened to be on the ship. And, and not even like his, not even his social class is discussed nope. whatsoever. It's, it's, it's a very much isolated thing. Like not even Casablanca can claim that. I agree. Um, but I think Casablanca is a little, you know, Casablanca is able to address it without being offensive. Yeah. But uh, this one in particular, I think, is damn near perfect. Yeah, he's just a character. And least I, lest I forget, the most important cast member, um, the star of Batteries Not Included, Hugh Cronin, <laughs> uh, married to Jessica Tandy, both of them very big friends with the Hitchcocks. Uh, Hugh Cronin wrote the treatment for Rope that ended mm. up becoming the script um, that was later on developed. But Hume Cronin um, playing Stanley Sparks Garrett, mm. one of my favorite names in cinema <laughs> history now. Um, but, yeah, you have all these characters who – clash and combat with each other um especially when it comes to um the uh the nazi in the boat and you know from a plot perspective i think the 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 main thing to take away from this is that as this is a war film and a propaganda film by the very end oh yeah it's the most challenging when it comes to the 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 plot itself yeah and it's not an over um overacting by by the German or the Nazi in it because you it's interesting because the plays it that oh maybe because of his situation he can be a different guy and then there's all these little clues you know they're going the wrong way well how would they know because they're being led by the Nazi who knows what he's doing then they find out they're going east they're not going to towards Bermuda because he's been hiding a compass yeah he's hiding a compass and uh when he kills the one guy Oh Gus! Yeah, he just he's he, like, he says, "Come here, come here, Gus!" And he just 
pushes him over the fucking boat. You're like, Holy shit! Yeah, it's, I mean, like, I mean, this is a film that I really encourage people to seek out, whether it's digital video or the Blu-ray from Kino Lobor. I think it's only like fifteen bucks. I looked it up because I might. I yeah. think I'm going to buy it. And it's, it, dude, it's. I mean, it's worth whatever money you're putting into it. It mm. is a fantastic film. The character of Gus gets gets his leg amputated because mm. he's got an infection spreading, and the character is played by William Bendix, who. Uh, as an actor, it's fascinating because he he gets his start primarily through these war films, and uh, he, he played Babe Ruth in the Babe Ruth story back in the day. Um, he ended up having a much more prominent radio career playing um, uh, Riley Nelson in The Life of Riley, which was a radio sitcom. Uh, most well known for having a grave, uh, 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 an Undertaker sidekick <laughs> called Digger Odell. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. I, if any radio show I'd recommend to you, you might like that because it's about a blue collar guy who works at a war plant, and then that kind of moves away from that after the war ends. But uh, Bendix's character, he's driven mad by the, lo- the the lack of water, and he keeps trying to get water out of the boat, uh, out from outside the boat. Because he needs something, mm-hmm. even if it's salt water, and they keep telling him, "No, it's going to make it worse if you drink salt water, because yeah. it's going to dehydrate you further." And he just doesn't care. And his character rec- realizes that Willie the Nazi uh, is concealing water as well. Yeah. Um, from it, it's diabolical the way they play that yes, I mean, Willie character is he's, fascinating. He's not an over the top villain. It's, no, he's very subtle. He's very subtle and he's not a good person. Yeah. And it, and that's why the dilemma of them going back to I mean they should have killed him. Yeah. And uh they didn't because they wanted to be better people and that's where I think the propaganda comes in. Yeah. It's like no matter what you do, don't trust a Nazi because he even comes back again at the end of the film where they pull the kid out of the water. Yeah, and then that kid's about to about to blow them. And like yeah. blow them away and 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 then it becomes that rallying point at the end. Yeah, because they they end up not killing that kid either. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because what's the last line of the movie? He says that uh, he asks if you're going to kill me. Yeah. Or it's not the very last. It's like the second to last line in the film. Um, it's it's uh, yeah. It's um, you're not going to kill me or something like that. After they take the gun from him. Yeah. They kind of just they they dismiss they that out at, the window. Yeah, yeah. Then they look at the sh- the ship coming towards them and it ends. Yeah. So I guess it's a depressing ending. It's. It's. I think it's. I think it's an ending that. The only reason it has issues is because it's clashing with the thematics. Yeah, but it, it do- works. It, yeah, it's not. It's not on. Un- it's not unwarranted. No, it's it's earned because even after all of that, after um, the Nazi pushed the dude into the water and like sadistically made, murders him, um, you know, it's they they still decide they're going to help this kid because they then they beat the Nazi to death with a fucking boot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they beat him so he falls off the side of the boat. Yeah, they they're they're they're, yeah. they're crashing at his his fingers and arms. And yeah, shit. but they all gang up and beat him up. Even the women get in and beat him up. So it's a it's a very interesting and well made film. And that's what I want to say, man. How are they going to do Hitchcock shots in this? Because but he does a couple uh, where he has actors in the foreground. Yeah, and in the background he has just lights on their eyes and stuff. And, and, uh, and POV too. There's yeah. a lot of POV that can come through. Oh, yeah, that the shoe. Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the shoe especially. Um, it, you know, so the film comes out. And it comes out in 1944, which we're we're nearing the end, yeah. um, and sympathies, or well, because it should be pointed out that Lifeboat is not like a sympathetic Nazi no, portrayal. No, 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 no. But what it is doing is talking about the morality of being above the villain. And, and eventually, I think it's it, what makes it really interesting too is 
you eventually realize that you're going to have to live with these people. Yeah. And how do you live with them? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's frankly, it's a question that Jojo Rabbit asks, yeah, um, which absolutely. I find very fascinating. And one of the reasons why Jojo Rabbit's more challenging than I think people are giving it credit yeah. for. Much like Lifeboat, it's falling into certain situations. And when the critics see this, they are mostly positive on the outset. Um, but uh, then critics start backtracking themselves and start questioning the patriotism of it all. And, hmm. you know, the, 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 this com- there's a commentary that caused Steinbeck to uh, disassociate from the film because it's, it's pushing into radical territory. Um, and the, uh, uh, the Hitchcock responded to the criticism and I wanted to read this cause I think it's interesting. Um, so, uh, he said, I always respect my villain, building him into a redou- redoubtable character that will make my hero or thesis more admirable in defeating him or it. So the fact that he makes him not sympathetic I, I mean the fact that he makes him relatable mm-hmm. is only to further his villainy well those are the best villains yeah and that's clear when you watch the film is oh, that yeah. it's not about you know humanizing a monster mm. it's about playing with you you have to remember that hitchcock really good at making a villain work is good at making you terrified of him mm-hmm. and i think the only reason why it gets uh, addressed the way it does by critics is because it's tied directly into that propaganda yeah. aesthetic. Um, it's 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 certainly not to humanize Nazis. What it no. is is talking about how they could how someone could be fooled. It's similar to how saboteur works, yeah. where there's enough doubt put in yeah. that it pushes. But saboteur works on a much more uh, likable ground, yeah. and the villains are a little bit more mustache twiddling, yeah. Than than something like Lifeboat, where it's very sophisticated, yeah. and it and it plays on it the way Inglorious Bastards does with uh, Hans Landa, yeah. Um, although I, Hans Landa strides the line between mustache twirling and but he's sophistic- really good at it. He's re- I'm really good at it. But the movie opens and it is a bomb. Uh, it loses money for. Mm. Um, Daryl uh, F. Zanuck's 20th Century Fox, to which Daryl F. Zanuck responded, "Fuck!" <laughs> he was like a short little man with a mustache, but he walked around like a damn colonel during the war. Uh, if you if you want to see, not, it's not hilarious, but if you want to see some amusing pictures of Daryl F. Zanuck during the war, he would always wear his goddamn je- his uh, colonel outfit nice. <laughs> throughout the studio, and it's. It's it's like a boy playing soldier. It's really weird. Jack Warner did the same thing, and I'm just like, <laughs> but uh, the the movie is nominated for best director at the Academy Awards, best story by John Steinbeck, and best cinematography Glenn McWilliams, which I think yeah. Glenn McWilliams is more than deserved to win that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's also won the National Board Review of the top ten films of the year. So even with the criticism. It is put into a posterity of the time. Yeah. Um. So it's. You know, very similar to how some films are received today. We kind of go through those issues within that. Um, so this is the last traditional film in the thing. And I didn't ask you to watch our next thing, but I'm going to bring it up. So uh, uh, Hitchcock, in addition to his um, uh, uh, traditional narrative work, made two different uh, propaganda shorts. Uh, for the uh, for the British uh, it's uh, for the British uh, government, and 
he also consulted on the formation of a film called German Concentration Camps Factual Survey, mm. um, mainly organized and constructed by his eventual producing partner, Cindy Bernstein, who helped him form Transatlantic Pictures. And the film is shot, uh, uh, the, the footage is shot at Bergen-Belsen, uh, which was one of the more, uh, it was it's one of the many camps where, you know, things were discovered uh, upon allies entering in to liberate that mm. uh, the Nazis' uh, atrocities and crimes are revealed. And Bernstein gets the footage. Uh, he and the cameramen uh, work hard at um, acquiring this footage to gather the evidence for the eventual trials. Because um, there's not just the one Nuremberg mm. trial, there's a bunch of trials. Yeah. Uh, the Nuremberg trials primarily it, it has some of Bernstein's film, but it mainly has a lot of the Stevens film is what I've been reading now. You know, I could mm. be wrong. And if somebody wants to correct me, please feel free to do so. I will gladly admit fault. Um, but uh, the bottom line is, is that a lot of filmmakers from the era that are, you know, traditional Hollywood filmmakers are assigned to gather this evidence. Uh, Stevens being among them. And Stevens is actually dramatically changed by uh, his experience. And if, if you want to watch uh, a documentary about the American experience on this end, watch Five Came Back, which is a series on Netflix um, uh, based on a book by Mark Harris. Mm -hmm. But Night Will Fall is a documentary from HBO uh, directed by Andre Singer that uh, goes into the formation of Bernstein and Hitchcock's film. And Hitchcock is not strictly committed to it 100%, and it's not because he doesn't want to. It's because he goes over to Britain to basically organize and direct the footage that has already been shot into a narrative that can be used mm. for what would be considered a propaganda film, but also a, a Nazi crimes atrocity revelation. Um, and uh, he spends a month diligently working on this film with Bernstein, goes back to Hollywood for his obligations, and the British government um, shelves the film uh, before it's even fully completed which is a factor that i did not know when i previously mentioned this information in a couple episodes ago uh and the bottom line is that not everything was strictly finished but all of hitchcock and bernstein's notes are there uh the film was reconstructed and done to hitchcock and bernstein's detailed specifics by the imperial war museum which amongst the other work they've done is help organize peter jackson's film they shall not grow old um, but the footage that you see in that film in Night, in Night Will Fall, where it's it shows German concentration camp survey alongside the documentary of telling how it was made. And you watch the footage, you understand that for Hitchcock to get involved with something like this, he clearly had a stake in doing his patriotic duty. Um, and I recommend Night Will Fall if you are not in a mood to... Um, you've got to you've you've got to be in the right mindset to watch it because the footage you watch is very disturbing um but it talks a little bit about uh to my mind is the power of film to affect change within society whether it's through these propaganda films these pre-coded warnings prior to war or the uh the tragic and the we must not repeat aftermath of war or at least what we find has been going on that we're not aware of until the last minute. Um, you know, not to bring it to a down note, but the bottom line is, is that Hitchcock is a person who, you know, still did his duty, even while still being in Hollywood under, you know, the Celtics contract and stuff. And he still 
managed to get across the message of why this war was important, but also the lessons we can't forget about mm. it. And what's funny is, is that when German concentration camps factual survey does come out years later, Hitchcock's still sending a message. Yep. Even years later, even if other people have to reconstruct it, yep. you know, and we've seen a lot of reconstruction projects happen through the, through the last couple of years, whether it's, you know, Orson Welles' the Other Side of the Wind or uh, even their Sherlock or Old, which is constructing this footage and creating a narrative out of it. Um, I didn't see the 3D version, but that sounds interesting uh, to be able to talk about the lessons from the past that we can't forget. What was mainly constructed to be evidence for a trial and evidence to the public which is ultimately shelved because of Britain's immediate decision to not further tamper down the relationship with mm -hmm. Germany because Germany needs to be rebuilt and they need to they it ultimately comes down to uh, making sure that stuff doesn't fall into Soviet hands. Mm -hmm. um, and if you watch Night Will Fall, you also see that you also see the footage that uh, Soviet cameramen shot um, for their own uh, archive purposes. Because they liberated a lot more camps. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when it's all said and done, uh, evidence was gathered through the power of film to show these atrocities and why they must not be repeated. What's interesting is that something that Hitchcock had involvement with, completed or not, or even the narrative films that he shot, still affect us today. Mm -hmm. Because it's a shame that we're having to talk about issues that we've already fucking talked about. <laughs> um, end rant there. Um you know, so we've talked about, you know, Hitchcock's World War II career. Um, World War II ends. Hurrah. Yay. Um, uh, but don't worry. They'll be back for World War Three. Yay. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but uh, so Hitchcock ultimately, you know, does his duty. Uh, granted, not overseas, but he does his duty. Uh, and when it's all said and done, you know, we get a Hitchcock filmography, a mini filmography that is a mostly perfect blend of two different mindsets of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, you said Saboteur was your favorite. Uh, I've got to go with Lifeboat yeah. for mine. And now, granted, I know that might sound me being a little hoity-toity, uh, <laughs> but I think it's... Yeah. I think it's the... <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> I, I think it's... I think uh, Lifeboat is the most powerful film. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I just like Saboteur because I thought it was the most Hitchcockian yeah. and is the... It's, most fun. Yeah, it's oh, it is the most fun. Yeah. But I will tell you that if there was one I was going to rewatch out of all of them, like Lifeboat, like being my favorite, Saboteur being a really good one, Foreign Correspondence, a lot of fun. Oh, it is, and yeah. it's got a lot of Hitchcock in it that you don't expect. And yeah. The visual effects still hold up yeah. today. You know, like it's funny, a lot of Hitchcock's visual effects still hold up today. Watch The Birds on a 4K TV, it still works. Oh, yeah. uh, watch Foreign Correspondent on a 4K TV. Yes, it's black and white. Yes, it's models. It still works. Yeah, still awesome. Uh, and 39 Steps, of course. Let's not forget where it all begins. That looks great. Um, with this pre-coded. The only bummer is the Lifeboat Blu-ray is kind of a not a good transfer. Yeah, and I don't. So I've looked into what might be the cause of that. And the only thing that I can gather is is that that print wasn't treated very well mm. uh, initially because that print. I love the cover on it, though. Yeah, the cover's great. The print, though, when you watch the film, it starts off, it's it's seen some wear and tear, and it gets mm. better as the movie it goes does. on. There's a, just a couple inserts where it looks pretty bad. Yeah. Um, scratches and things like that. But yeah. I don't hold it that much against a film that's <laughs> 80 years old. You know, you go into a time machine yeah. like, fix this shit. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, take better care of your films, assholes. <laughs> You just throw dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Poof. <laughs> Ryan, be gone. Yeah. Um, so that wraps up another Shamley silhouette. Ryan, thank you for coming oh, back down thanks. and talk about for, uh, um, 
Let me see those movies. Yeah, no, it's fun, dude. And you know, anytime you want to rewatch those ones, let me know because like those are those are films that I, you know, when we started the series, I was like, man, this will be interesting to go back into them. And now they're the ones I want to watch back the most. You know? Nice. Um, but uh, for more information on the Shamley Silhouette, you can find us at realnerdspodcast.com. Hey, that's my podcast. Hey, your podcast. <laughs> you should promote it right now. Yeah, <laughs> go to realnerdspodcast.com. You can find news and uh, actually we don't do news on the podcast. We do uh, blogs and reviews and things like that on top of our daily podcast or weekly podcast daily where have i been <laughs> yeah, our weekly podcast movie reviews i'm only on one day of the daily podcast because <laughs> i'm exclusive mm-hmm. uh yes you can check out real nerds where you can find real nerds podcast and uh, different articles that uh are written you can actually at this point now ryan finished up his carrie grant a thon yeah and wrote a very comprehensive oh, ranking thanks. of hit carrie grant's films but also he goes into detail with them, guys. So you guys need to read this article. Oh, you thanks, need to Jack. learn from Ryan on Cary Grant. <laughs> what I can teach you about Jack Benny, he can teach you with Cary That's Grant. That's right. Uh, so. I'm going to name my next job Archie. <laughs> Dude, do it. I'm totally in him. So awesome. Archie Leach is going to be my next dog. Dude, if you get another It's going to be a long time, but it's going to be Archie Leach. Yeah, th- is he going to be a while? Well, you've got, that's right, you've got the two other yeah, dogs. Yeah, so. my, my other dogs are pretty young. Yeah. So hopefully um, they'll be with me a while. Well, I hope so. <laughs> it was sad when Reggie passed. Yeah, like, I know. Sad. See, I, it'd, be, it'll be a dog like that. Cool. Be Archie, Archie Leach. Yeah, get another one and name it Aster. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, as far as the Shamley Silhouette is concerned, uh, you can find us on Instagram too at the Shamley Silhouette, where I post little random pictures of Hitchcock occurrences, mostly funny and humorous. The next one will be a one of him and Dick Cavett, because uh, I like Dick Cavett. I um, love when Dick Cavett show shows up on Criterion's. Oh God. It's so much fun, right? Yeah. Well, it's weird because you learn about Dick Cavett initially. Probably, I mean, the way I did was through The Simpsons when mm-hmm. uh, Homer's talking with him and Dick Cavett mentions ha- having dinner with Groucho and Homer goes, you're going to be having dinner with Groucho tonight if you don't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, uh, and then on the next episode, uh, I believe I'm going to be discussing uh, two films by Hitchcock that are pretty much the same because they have the same titles. And I'm going to be having on a former guest and a new guest on this, all in the same room. It's going to be so interesting. Cool. Uh, And uh, a little uh, Jimmy Stewart action will be happening in that episode. So stay tuned. Uh, But until next I tell you, I love it. That was a pretty good Jimmy Stewart. uh, I just busted out. Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy. How are you, Jimmy? Jimmy, are you good, Jimmy? I'm good, Jimmy. (laughs) Uh, But until next time, good night. This is London. We have as a guest tonight one of the soldiers of the press, one of the little army of historians who are writing history from beside the cannon's mouth, the foreign correspondent of the New York Globe, Huntley Haverstock. Hello, America. I've been watching a part of the world being blown to pieces. A part of the world as nice as Vermont and Ohio and Virginia and California and Illinois lies ripped up and bleeding like a steer in a slaughterhouse. And I've seen things that make the history of the savages read like Pollyanna legends. I've I've seen seen we shall have to postpone the broadcast. Oh, postpone nothing. Let's go on as long as we can. Madam, we have a shelter downstairs. How about it, Carol? They're listening in America, John. Okay. We'll tell them. I can't read the rest of the speech I have because the lights have gone out, so I'll just have to talk off the cuff. All that noise you hear isn't static. It's death coming to London. Yes, they're coming here now. You can hear the bombs falling on the streets and the homes. Don't tune me out. Hang on a while. This is a big story, and you're part of it. It's too late to do anything here now except stand in the dark and let them come. It's as if the lights were all out everywhere, except in America. Keep those lights 
with steel, ring them with guns, build a canopy of battleships and bombing planes around them. Hello, America. Hang on.